You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, everybody. Ron Franklin, and welcome once again to Saturday night primetime college football and tonight on The Deuce. And let me say right off the top how pleased we are that North Carolina is even able to be here for this football game. Uh, I'm afraid if we were trying to play a night game in Chapel Hill, it would be virtually impossible because we understand that three-quarters of a million homes in central North Carolina are without power tonight. And virtually everybody on the travel party, team, and coaches alike have been defected, affected directly or indirectly by the storm. Even Mac Brown had a tree come through the roof of his home, Mike Godfrey, so no one has gone untouched. A few distractions for the kids tonight, but again, we wish everybody, uh, we send them our best. And we hope that the distractions are not too great. How good is North Carolina? 45 to nothing. They blitzed Clemson last week. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. What is good, everybody? You're tuned in again to the throwback on InsideCarolina.com, episode five. We're back with you. We're glad you're back with us. Inside Carolina, InsideCarolina.com, uh, your place to find out whatever you want to find out about UNC sports. And even when there aren't any sports, we're here for you, providing some uh, what we hope you think is great content. Uh, today, we're going to jump in the Wayback Machine and head back to September 7th, 1996, to what some people might call Mac Brown 1.0. That's when Mac was really getting things rolling at Carolina. Really had a, a defense that had some dogs, had some bodies, especially uh, on that defensive front. Had some linebackers, then had some more linebackers behind those linebackers. Uh, so we're going to talk about a game in 1996 against Syracuse today up in the Carrier Dome. First thing I want to do is is make sure we give a shout out to Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. They have been loyal sponsors and supporters of Inside Carolina and Inside Carolina's content for a long time. We want to make sure you guys are supporting them. Be sure to head to the website, uh, even in the midst of, you know, temporary business or whatever. JohnnyTShirt.com has great service as far as getting you what you need in a quick and efficient manner. They've got some amazing prices right now. I think as we record this, they're running some sales on some Jumpman stuff uh, and lots of jerseys. So be sure to check that out. And even if you don't like jerseys or if you don't like Jumpman stuff, if you need Carolina gear, please, 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 JohnnyT-Shirt.com. And on top of that, if you're an Inside Carolina premium subscriber, you know that you get an extra 10%, so you can save money off of your savings already. And who doesn't like a win-win? Well, speaking of wins, let's take a look at what we're, what we're going to talk about today before I bring on our two guests. September 7th, 96, as I told you about. This is a Carolina team that's coming in number 24, playing against Syracuse, who has top 10 expectations and aspirations of the year. They've got a signal caller by the name of Donovan McNabb, number five. You may have heard of him and seen him before. Had a very storied NFL career with the Eagles. Some people may or may not want to remember his cup of coffee with the Redskins. But there was a lot of hype around this Syracuse team, and Carolina had already played a game earlier. They had played against Clemson. Just absolutely skull-dragged the Tigers and kind of made some people take notice. And so UNC comes in, and this is after ending a 95 season where they beat an SEC team in Arkansas in the CarQuest Bowl, finished that year 7-5. So they're coming in 
traveling up to Syracuse. And at the time, they're escaping what would be a really damaging and, you know, $2.4 billion worth of uh, loss due to Hurricane Fran here in the Triangle. So uh, we're, we're going into the game. They show pictures of trees being down on campus right in the middle of the, the upper quad and just all kinds of destructions. They mention it. They talk about how Mac Brown had a tree in the middle of his house. Well, to do more damage along those lines, we're bringing our two guests today. We've got, once again, Magnum TA Tommy Ashley from Inside Carolina and a good old friend of mine, former tag team partner, always a buddy, Crusher Chris Morris. Guys, how you doing? Doing well, Joey. Joey. pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, man. Appreciate you having me. I feel honored to be on this podcast to start with. And then I'm on a podcast with a couple guys that do, used to do old school wrestling shows. I mean, you can't get any better sitting here in Johnston County, North Carolina, talking to you guys. Well, well I, I think I, this lineup I don't, uh, I don't, could be the new uh, world six-man tag team champions. <laughs> uh, the Koloffs have nothing on us. <laughs> I won't tell you guys, but I'm I'm fairly certain right now that Chris is actually recording this podcast with us while wearing face paint. But with <laughs> all that aside, or deny. <laughs> with all that aside, uh, boys, thanks for being with us. Uh, I kind of teased a little bit about you know what was going on with this game, but I do want to say that you know this was a big game, and the reason we're looking at this game is because it was it was Mac really breaking this program onto the scene. 1996, you're beating a top 10 team the second game of the year on ESPN2. Uh, you got a brand new quarterback and a brand new offense with a defense that was slowly and steadily getting better. Guys, and I'll, Chris, I'll go to you first. Did you have any memories about this Carolina Syracuse tilt before we went back and, and, and rewatched it? Oh, I did. And you kind of hit on it there at the beginning, Joey, and the fact that you kind of got a feeling after that Clemson win, and Carolina just absolutely dominated the Tigers. Granted, Clemson was not what they used to be at that point in time and certainly nowhere near what they are now. But still, they were a good team that year, and Carolina dominated them. And you felt like this was a real opportunity for UNC to make a statement on a national level, national television, against the top ten team on the road and an opponent that, quite frankly, UNC should have beaten the year before in Chapel Hill. You know, had you know a fourth-quarter meltdown. And uh, Syracuse got away with the win back in 95, but you felt like this was a real opportunity for the Tar Heels to make a national statement. Yeah, I think that this was definitely going back, and I'm glad you referenced the the 95 year. You know, UNC won three quarters of that game, and then you gave up a 17-point fourth quarter. Tommy, what was your prior memory before we threw it back and, and watched this over again? Well, I, I tell you, when you got up with me and said we we're going to be talking about this game, the first thing I thought about was Hurricane Fran. And, and you know, 1996, that was a rough stretch there. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer because it was a great time for Carolina football. But you, you come off beating Clemson and everything is sky high. I mean, they destroyed the Tigers. And then you got this guy, Chris Keldorf, this tall guy from California. He's playing quarterback for Carolina and – Everybody's like, who is this guy? I mean, he's pretty good. Where'd he come from? And then Fran happens on Thursday. And we didn't have power where I grew up. So we had to actually go to Raleigh to spend the night that Saturday with friends of mine from work that had power and had ESPN too. Otherwise, we don't see the game and maybe listen to it with Woody on the radio, which was never a bad thing either. But that's what I initially thought of is – 
how devastating that hurricane was. And then going into this game, having the opportunity to get away from the devastation, our, our neighborhood was trashed by stuff. And so we go and we get to hang out at a friend's house who luckily for them didn't have a whole lot of destruction or anything and watch Carolina football. It couldn't have been a better um, release to be able to go and have a sporting event um, 48 hours, you know, 36, 48 hours after what had gone on in North Carolina. So that, that was my lead in going into this game. And also like Chris said, Donovan McNabb stole that game in Chapel Hill uh, the year before. And I remember being in Keenan stadium thinking, you know, they've got this new quarterback. He's pretty good, but he's a freshman and he should not beat Mac Brown and North Carolina in Keenan stadium. And yet they did. So it was a revenge factor for sure going up there. Um, just a lot of stuff going on. It was amazing to me that Carolina and Mac Brown and his staff could get his boys focused to go to the Carrier Dome. You know, I think there may be a, a joke about Johnson County and they're somewhere and leaving to go somewhere else to where you have power and watch TV. But that's another conversation for a different day. <laughs> I, I'll, give you that one. The- I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one, <laughs> one shot. <laughs> They were looking for indoor plumbing too, Joey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you all mentioned that. Okay, so we've got the kind of what we remembered, and now we're going to go in and actually talk about the game. I mean, honestly, this felt like, you know, a very methodical, very workmanlike, you know, to use a a very overused word, but it felt like a very workmanlike ball game. Tommy, what was your – what was your takeaways as far as the kind of the major events of what shaped the outcome of, the, of this contest? You know, it was, uh, I did not remember it um, thinking back without rewatching it, but Carolina having played that Clemson game was huge for Carolina and Syracuse had not had a game to that point and they had the hype. They lost Marvin Harrison, um, you know, from the year before. So Donovan McNabb, here he is as a sophomore and he doesn't have, this stud receiver that he could rely on, that he did rely on the year before. And so Carolina had a defense that was getting better. Um, you mentioned the CarQuest Bowl win. It was a little bit – it wasn't a down year. I think Carolina was 7-5, and five, weren't they, the year before. Um, so, so after beating Clemson, I thought, well, Carolina's got some momentum, but let's see about going away from home. And they got into the game, and you're right. It wasn't a very pretty game the most part. Um, Keldorf did what he had to do on third down conversions in the first half, and Carolina was able to get out to that lead. Um, and it seemed to be relatively smooth for Carolina um, up to a certain point. We'll get into that in a little bit, but you're right. Workman-like, defense-led type game. You know, Jomo Leggins played his butt off in the first half, got picked on a little bit. Um, but when you've got guys like Dre Bly, and Robert Williams back there, um, Donovan McNabb was an absolute non-factor um, when the game was taking shape, and I thought that was huge for Carolina. The impressive thing about Chris Keldorf is, number one, that he has time. Here's the double team again on the big defensive nose guard, Antonio Anderson, 6'7", 309. But the other impressive point is Chris Keldorf knows where to throw the football. He's a junior college player that got to North Carolina to have spring practice, so he benefited from that coaching-wise. You see the power eye that's Watson in motion. 
but the give is to 35, Elise McGregor, and it's touchdown North Carolina. I love the way you phrased it about Donovan McNabb being a non-factor. Chris, I'll come to you. Was it more of of McNabb being very meh? You know, a lot of his 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 uh, critiques and folks that would that would kind of pick at him over the course of his career. A lot of the flaws that they harped on, you saw in this game. Was it was it so much that Donovan McNabb was meh and rusty, or was the Carolina defense that good? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the defense he was he was facing. I mean, Tommy just mentioned it right there. You take a look just at that defensive backfield with uh, Dre Blind, Robert Williams, Jomo Leggins back there. By the way, Jomo Leggins, one of my all-time favorite Carolina football names right up there with Storm Duck now. But um, with, uh, with that Carolina defense, it, and yeah, McNabb had lost his top target, obviously, in Marvin Harrison, and we know what a great player he was and went on to be at the next level. But I tell you what, the Carolina pass rush, I thought, really you know, kept McNabb unsettled. He was able to get away quite often just because he's a superior athlete. But I tell you what, in the first half, Donovan McNabb probably could have told you what Greg Ellis had for pregame meal. He could have smelled it on his breath because Greg was in his face repeatedly in the first half. So I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that this was a pretty doggone stout Carolina defense, especially you know, we talked about the defensive backfield, but that front seven was nothing to sneeze at either. Here's what Donovan McNabb is looking at. The coverage right here by Robert Williams on Deion Maddox. But because it's bump and run coverage, can't get off the ball as quickly as he'd like. And Robert Williams is just running stride by stride with him. You're going to have a lot of confidence in your cornerbacks to play that kind of defense. Well, you have to have two good solid corners. And North Carolina has them in Robert Williams and Dre Bly. Well, you see the numbers. 0 for 4 on third down conversions. McNabb's pass dropped. Dre Bly caused it. Let's don't put all the blame on Maddox. He probably should have caught it. But Bly came up and really ripped him away from the football. And we see no movement on the sideline for the special teams. He's 100% right there. Yeah, I mean... Another thing that was funny, Joey, watching this game, and y'all may or may not agree, was how big were the shoulder pads back then? And and it's not even that far back. My biggest highlight, Tommy. You're taking my biggest highlight of the game. The neck roll. The the neck roll. (laughs) The cowboy collars. The new lockers. Yeah, the new lockers that they have in in Keenan Stadium now, these new fancy lockers, do not work. The guys were guys were literally run up and down the field with you know 18 inch wheels on each shoulder and i have no, no idea how how anybody especially a skill player who who was supposed to move his arms whatsoever could do that with the size pads that they were playing in but we digress uh, I, I was i was going to point out you know chris alluded a little bit to the bodies that carolina was running out on that front seven and that is not to ignore how great the defensive backfield was but you know they're rotating in a greg ellis a Mike Pringley, uh, a Vonnie Holiday, a Marcus Dow. I mean, there there was later on into the game, I was hearing names of guys that you know I hadn't even seen before in the game because Carolina was just that deep. When when they really started getting to McNabb in the first half, did you guys and Chris? I'll go back to you for this one. Did you feel like McNabb was going to be able to overcome it with the athletic with his athleticism, or did you know and and part of it is 
revisionist history because we saw what happened? Or did you think they were really going to have to have some sort of big special teams play or a big turnover for a score to, to change that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something that really tipped the hand fairly early in the game, if I'm not mistaken. It happened late in the first quarter uh, when Syracuse, you know, they gave you a lot of option look with McNabb back then. They kind of ran a reverse out of their option look. And I had an old coach who used to say, whenever they start breaking out gadgets that early in the game, they know they're in trouble. Uh, so mm. you really felt like at that point in time that Carolina really did have a manpower advantage defense versus the Syracuse offense. Now, McNabb, obviously, you know, we talked about what a great playmaker he was at that time. Uh, you, you never count him out. And he had some, a couple of opportunities where wide receivers let him down and you know, they had a bad missed call go against them later on in the game, which I'm sure we'll probably get to. But uh, overall, whenever they start breaking out the gadget plays early, you're, you're in their head. You've got a pretty good shot whenever uh, they have to start breaking that out. Yeah, that's a, that's a good adage. Tommy, What? how did you think things were changing? You know, initially Carolina has a really good, again, we've said efficient, workmanlike uh, first half. The second half, first thing we see is a breakdown on special teams, and all of a sudden Syracuse ha- has life. Do you feel like that, that really jump-started things, or did you see anything in the first half that made you feel like they had a chance to come back without a big punt block or, or something like that? I didn't really – I thought they had to have something happen. I mean, if the way the first half was going, yeah, there, his receivers let him down, and, and there was a big drop there later later on. But Carolina was in control. And, and you've got guys – y'all talked about defense front, but you got guys like James Hamilton running after him. And, and you can game plan, and a athletic quarterback can get away from one, maybe two, maybe even three guys that are – all the ways after him but Carolina had four and five and six guys that were chasing him on every play and I just felt like especially re-watching it now I at the time watching the game you know my opinion back then was Carolina's always gonna lose they're gonna find a way to lose uh, <laughs> like a true fan <laughs> it doesn't matter what's happening uh you know until it's over it's never over for Carolina football and but going back and watching it, it just felt like Matt Brown's defense settled in and they were all over him and he didn't have an opportunity to get anything done. So I felt like it was going to take some breakdown. Now, I didn't realize Carolina was going to have two breakdowns, but then the defense bails them out um, regardless. So, you know, it, the rewatch provided me a clarity that Carolina was in firm control the entire game. The punts being blocked certainly made it a little bit questionable, but I never got the sense watching it again that Donovan McNabb and the offense was going to get it done for Syracuse. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty pretty safe to say. There was one point, you know, we're talking about the defense. There's one point where you could really see how confident Mike Brown and Carl Torbush were in that defense. There was a third and seven in the first half, and Carolina put nine men on the line of scrimmage. I don't mean nine guys in the box. I mean, they put nine men on the line of scrimmage, which tells you that not only do they trust their speed, they trust their coverage on the outside. Um, Chris, you you touched on it a little bit about some controversies in this game. Do you want to kind of shed some light on on one that that really jumped out at you that was – a controversial call or no call that, that maybe our listeners should look for? Well, one thing that I had forgotten about and it came back uh, in the rewatch was uh, on the second block punt. You know, Syracuse blocks a punt and then they block another one. 
that uh, they thought resulted in a touchdown that uh, would have basically cut the Carolina lead to three after the point after. Uh, but the touchdown gets called back. And we never really get a good explanation from the official, and we never really get a good explanation from the broadcast crew. And Kellen Winslow may have been a fantastic player in the NFL, but as a sideline reporter, uh, let's just say it wasn't his strength. <laughs> because we're, uh, we're, we're two series after before we get an explanation as to why the Syracuse touchdown was taken off the board on the block punt. As it turns out, it was they, they call it a clipping call, but then they say it's because the kid who blocked the punt ends up laying on uh, Carolina punter Derek DePriest, which shouldn't have been a clip. It would have been a hold. Uh, regardless, that's semantics. But uh, that whole thing, I'd forgotten about the confusion, but it, it took me back to that time and place 24 years ago watching the game because I remember thinking as I was watching it, okay, are we going to get any kind of explanation as to what was going on with that? So uh, that whole thing was uh, was was kind of weird to me. Not not a shining example of officiating uh, or uh, by the commentary team on uh, the deuce at that point in time. There was no touchdown on the play. So Mike, they're going to penalize him here, and who? We're not going to give him the touchdown either. He signaled television, and now they have re. Recanted. Then it had to happen while the play was going on. They're saying personal foul before the score. But he clearly signaled touchdown and said after the play, initially. But undoubtedly, Mike Dover and his crew huddled and decided it was during the play. A quarter of a century later, and we're still just as confused. Tommy, <laughs> I, I, how do you feel? How, how do you feel about that one? I mean, it's it, you know, it's really easy for us to say. Well, see, ACC officials were still trash in 1996. What what were your takeaways from the the controversial moments of the game, like the one Chris just alluded to? Yeah, I don't. It, he was he's right on it because I still don't know what happened. You know, it was they talked about they didn't show it. Uh, yeah, and that's one thing about. Um, the advancement in technology and television, because it was cool to have ESPN two, but ESPN two might as well have had one guy running around with a camera out there. And so you never got an explanation. You never saw it again. I still don't know what happened. You know, it was a clip. It was a hold. It was celebration. It was roughing the snapper, which the roughing the snapper discussion made me laugh because Carolina got screwed at Notre Dame on that <laughs> many um, years later yeah, yeah not too terribly <laughs> long ago um I, I was there in south bend and the notre dame faithful even laughed at that one so but but yeah i mean that's the biggest part of the game now they missed a bad uh pass interference that they called on jomo leggins in the first half um but to take a touchdown off the board with no viable explanation certainly helped Carolina and I can't even believe um, that the Syracuse coaching staff didn't explode one voice I heard which was pretty doggone funny and it was immediately um, obvious was as Ed Ogeron's voice and I was like wait a minute 
is the LSU coach, did he coach for Syracuse back then too? And lo and behold, he was the defensive line coach. He's the only one I heard fussing about the call on the, on the replay. So it was nice for Carolina to get the benefit of that. I thought it was a huge moment. Um, but even still, it makes the game more interesting, but does it slow down Carolina's defense on during you know, the run they were having against Donovan Mab? Who knows? Now, if I'm Mac Brown and I've given up two block punts and almost a third, I probably don't punt again in that ball game. And but they did and they got it off. But you know, just a crazy turn of events, something we'll never really know what happened given what happened on the broadcast. Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess that officiating crew will probably go to their graves with whatever their definition is. There was also a really um, unfortunate, and again, I don't think this would have changed the outcome of the ball game. But when they called an incomplete pass on, I can't remember the the receiver's name for Syracuse when he clearly actually held on to the ball. Carolina had great coverage, but the kid uh, kid caught the ball, hit him and hit him right in the chest plate, and. Uh, he fell, the ball popped up, but he still stayed under it. And they call that an incomplete pass, which it would have extended a drive for Syracuse. But again, no love lost here. I'm not going to shed any tears on that one. Uh, guys, what was your timeless highlight of the ball game? You know, this this wasn't uh, just a few episodes ago here on the throwback. We looked back at a, a Carolina-Duke game from 2015 that was all highlights. This one didn't have as many. What would you guys say? And Tommy, I'll let you tee it up first. What would you guys say is your your timeless highlight from this ball game? You know, I, I think maybe um, it was Keldorf completing third down passes. You know, to L.C. Stevens, to Nay Brown there in the second half. And then um, Keldorf to Freddie Jones pretty much sealed the game and that run. I, I just thought I can't find one specific – if we're going to talk about one specific highlight, maybe it is the block punt touchdown. No, it's not. Yes, it was. No, it's not moment. But – I think Keldorf stepping up big on third down is the thing I take away the most. Um, and I didn't realize how how different he released the ball at times. You know, he had the sidearm throw. He had overs hop and all yep. that. But, but I, I think him being able to navigate that and make those big third down completions would be the, the timeless highlight from that one because they were huge and they basically sealed the ball game. Chris, did you have anything specifically that jumped out at you that would have made your highlight real? Uh, well, I'll tell you, the, the, the Freddie Jones touchdown uh, reception that, that basically broke Syracuse's back finally, uh, that, that was the big highlight for me. But I actually have one that was not a highlight, uh, but it was a highlight that should have been uh, the Ebenezer Ecubon drop pass oh. in the second quarter. I think that, uh, that sealed Eb's fate as a future defensive end, which he went on to be a great one. <laughs> but uh he is uh i believe he was a sophomore at that point in time uh playing yes. tight end and he is wide open uh running up i think he was running a skinny post uh from the tight end position and there is no no syracuse defender even in the camera shot with him I mean, he is wide open and keldorf lays it in his hands as perfectly as can possibly be done and he just flat out drops it so uh, we, I think we saw the, the, the beginning of the end of Ebenezer Ekubon as a tight end there. But as I said, it worked out well for him as uh, he went on and had a uh, professional career of some note as a defensive end. And uh, you saw why in that play. What makes North Carolina difficult to defend is in a third down situation like this, they've got the big running back in Leon Johnson, a power running player, but also they got the little short passing game 
little three-step, five-step drop, and uh, so they can go either way, which puts pressure on Norm Gerber. Crowd comes to life. It is a third down and short. Too tight in alignment. And that's Johnson in motion to the top of your screen. They're going to throw. Brings it long. Wide open. Good heavens. Ecubon dropped the football. Oh, had they crossed him up. And that one would have gone for six. <laughs> you know, maybe this was the game that turned his career and, and made him some money. Maybe, maybe taking his eyes mm -hmm. off the ball and looking towards the end zone. Uh, made him into an NFL defensive end. You know, Chris, I'll go ahead and I'll take it a step further and say that this was a fortuitous drop by Mr. Ekibon, but God knows it was bad. To see, it was bad to see at the time. It really was. It worked I, out well. I, worked out well for Eb in the long run, and uh, worked out well for Carolina because they had a, a great one in Freddie Jones already, and another one in the holster and Algie Crumpler. So the, the, the Tar Heels were fine, and Eb ended up doing well for himself too. Yeah, how many guys? <laughs> how many guys make their career dropping a wide open touchdown pass? Yeah, and, and he did that day. It was just a great pickup, Chris. For, for for the for the sake of this show, we're going to just we're going to carry on for the rest of our rest of our existence with the throwback and saying that that play is what made Ebenezer Ekubon an NFL defensive end. <laughs> uh, speaking of of specific players. Tommy, who was your this guy of the game? Who was the guy that was just all over the place? You mentioned Keldorf a second ago. Is, is he going to be your this guy or is there somebody else? Uh, he is, uh, you know, I, I think his stats would provide him for the player of the game. But I, I texted you while I was watching this one, re-watching this one, and Nay Brown's going to be my guy. I mean, he made big catch after big catch, and he was sort of the, the outlet for Keldorf to make some of those third down completions. So I'm going to go with Nay. Yeah, he made plenty of big catches in his Carolina career, uh, but he was the man for me in this one. I'll be honest. I had not remembered him being that physical of a receiver, but man, he was great at kind of, you know, putting his body in between the defender and the ball and sealing off places to make sure he was going to make his catches in this game. That's a good pull. Chris, who was your, who was your, this guy of the game? Well, I'll tell you what, Tommy pretty much just stole my thunder there because it was something that I was thinking, and he basically just took the words right out of my, right out of my mouth. You know, you really, when you take a look at, at Carolina football history, and there's so much pride in all the 1,000-yard rushers, but really in the last 30 years, since the early 90s, you know, they've had some pretty talented wideouts as well. And I don't think Nate Brown really gets the credit he deserves for what a good player he was. And this game, to me, was a shining example of what he brought to the table because you're right, he was a physical guy, but not the biggest guy. Um, right. Not necessarily the fastest guy, although he had plenty of speed, but he, he found a way to get open. He had sure hands. He was not scared of going across the middle at all. Um, so Nate Brown was the guy for me. Keldorf was good. Um, and, you know, he, was, he had that great debut against Clemson, and, you know, he certainly he threw an accurate ball, and he went on and had a really solid year in 96 for the Tar Heels. But to me, Nay Brown was the guy in this game. Second down, wants to throw it. Right over the middle, touchdown, North Carolina, Nay Brown. But if you commit to throwing the football and you commit to having a balanced attack, you've got to be able to throw the ball on the two-yard line. Nate Brown came in motion again, just sat down in open zone, and uh, Chris Keldorf just uh, picked him out and threw the ball right to him for the touchdown. And this is a team with a lot of confidence. You could see that yesterday when they were walking through here. That Clemson game, not just the fact they played the first game, they played a pretty good opponent that they've had trouble with in the past and beat him convincingly and got confidence. 
Yeah, I, I think I think Nay was something special. I'll just to be again as I'm I want to be on this on this podcast. I'm going to say Keldorf just because he was he was very efficient. Uh, no picks, you know, over 200 yards passing. Didn't seem to get rattled at any point in time when when Syracuse made their little bit of a run. Uh, so I'm going to go with Keldorf, but I don't think that Nay Brown by either of you is a bad selection whatsoever. Guys, let's let's kind of let's allow our our inner Doctor Phil to open up here and and check with our check with our chakras and our our personal uh, our personal connections to our hearts and talk about our feelings. What did this rewatch make you feel, Chris? Oh uh, well, it, it did bring back a lot of nostalgia. Uh, the, the game was played on my twentieth birthday. I remember vividly uh, watching this game with friends before uh, heading out to celebrate for the evening. Um, and just, you know, that you had such a good feeling after this game. You know, I mentioned earlier that you felt going in that this was their opportunity to make a statement on a national level, and they did it, and, and did it, you know, in a very sound way because I remember thinking back to that game, even after the, the two block punts and, you know, Syracuse makes a little bit of rally and they got a little bit of life, and Tommy kind of mentioned it earlier, just thinking back to watching that game in real time, I never felt – at that point, like Carolina was going to lose that game. I never felt threatened. And that was something different because, like Tommy, <laughs> I was a jaded North Carolina football fan. You know, typically I would look back and I would think, okay, what's going to happen? I remember thinking that in 95 whenever they lost the game at Syracuse. <laughs> that you, you just There were games where you had that feeling like, okay, this is where it happens. This is where it's coming. But even, you know, thinking back to that night and watching that game, I never had that feeling. I really felt like, Carolina was going to win this game, and that in itself was a bit of a, a corner turner for the program. That's awesome, Tommy. What did uh, what did this nostalgia stir up for you? Uh, it showed me what Matt Brown could do at Carolina, and you know we've seen a little bit in Mac two point But let's be realistic. I mean. Right now, Mac at 2.0 is 7-6 and six at North Carolina. And next year, or 2020, if it happens, which is going to happen in some form, um, we'll see a Syracuse-type game, a Syracuse 96-type game for Mac Brown this coming season. I, when they went up there and won that game, and you know, being a jaded Carolina fan and sort of the Charlie Brown-Lucy football deal, um, I think every Carolina football fan feels that, maybe still does. But this game was a, an opportunity to for Carolina fans not to feel that with Matt Brown 2.0. And then they went on, you know, they beat Georgia Tech in like a grinder game two weeks later mm-hmm. in Atlanta and 16 nothing. but it was a grind. And then they go down to Florida State, and if my memory serves, it was pouring rain. And the reason I remember that game because – and what's interesting, Joey, about this game, okay, so here's my deal when I watch Carolina sports or any sports. I watch it in my house or I watch it at the venue. I'm not a bar <laughs> person. I'm not right. watching it at somebody else's house. And so we watched this Syracuse game there because we had to up at my buddy's house. But then two weeks or uh, several, uh, three weeks later, they play at Florida State, and I watch it in a bar prior to the KISS reunion tour in Greensboro. And I oh. see Carolina, and I see Carolina go to Florida State, and Matt Brown take his team to Florida State and lose thirteen nothing when Florida State was Florida State. And I thought Matt Brown, it, Carolina football is going to be good, 
and Syracuse was the first step. Clemson was a step. Syracuse at Syracuse was a big step. And then we see how the season turned out. Um, if you take away um, the game that never happened on later in November, but yeah. And then, you know, 10 and two, a great way to get it rolling. And it just rolls from there. And it sort of makes you think, like I said, when we talked about the Virginia tech game, um, I sort of think what could have been and Mac Brown had Carolina rolling in 96 rolling in 97. And I think it shows a light on what could happen now. And and so re watching that game sort of gives me that um, thought that this, this is real and it's coming again for North Carolina and, you know, and it's led by Mac Brown. Well, here, here's a little something uh, looking back on that 96 season, Tommy. Apparently, uh, Tar Heel football and music didn't mix because a little bit later on in that season, on the fateful night of the uh, game in Charlottesville, which I'm sure longtime Carolina fans remember quite well and quite painfully, uh, I was watching that game uh, on the second floor of Cobb Dormitory on the campus of the University of North Carolina as I was waiting for my girlfriend to finish getting ready for us to go see the Tim McGraw Faith Hill concert at the Smith Center that night. So uh, apparently it was uh, not, not a good year to try to mix Carolina football with live concerts. <laughs> That's a great story, man. Cobb Dorm, what, what, what memories? It's good to know that both of you jerks were the ones that caused both losses because you had to go to concerts <laughs> those nights. Nice job, guys. <laughs> So uh, aside from aside from uh, a younger, more spry, but still sounding as if he was gargling glass, Ed Ogeron, what else did you see in this game that maybe you hadn't seen before? The shoulder pads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's an easy enough answer. Chris, what did you see that you hadn't seen before? Uh, I'll tell you what I had forgotten and I hope I never see again is those Carolina coaching shirts. I was not a fan of the speckled marble Carolina blue look on the shirts that they wore that night. Well, it's uh, it was definitely popular because I remember seeing uh, just about all the coaching staff, including the strength coaches, and I forgot how big Mad Dog was, but all of them had on uh, a similar type of, a similar type marbled shirt. And you know what? If I could find one of those right now, I would really, really rock it. Um, but yeah, Tommy, it's the, the shoulder pads is that's, that's an entirely different conversation. Uh, all right, guys. Well, we're getting ready to kind of put a bow on this one here. I appreciate you guys spending time and, and kind of throwing in the way back machine here. Is there anything that maybe we haven't talked about? You guys feel like we have to mention before we wrap up this part of the show, Chris, I'll go to you first. Uh, again, it was just good to, to, to look back and, as we talked about, see, you know, where this Carolina program was coming from in the early days under Mac Brown, you know, the back-to-back one and ten seasons that he had to struggle through. And then, you know, he starts to get it kicking a little bit uh, in the early 90s. And, you know, then they, they, they change the offense. They go more pro-style, more West Coast offense. They get a, a quality quarterback in there that can run that offense. And, They've got playmakers on both sides of the ball. It's just fun to look to look back and look at the talent that was on the field that was already established at that point in time and to look at future superstars. I mean, Dre Bly out here is a freshman. and It's just fun to look back and uh, just to, to reminisce about the beginning of a, a very special couple of year-long run in the history of Carolina football. Absolutely. And I've always said, you know, the – the whole concept about this show and, and this podcast is we want to kind of revel in this nostalgia. And this is 
this is a real good time for Carolina football when this this original game against against Syracuse happened. Tommy, what have we not touched on that you want to leave our listeners with before we go? Well, he hit uh, – Chris hit on it, and it's something I had in my notes. And, of course, I never look at my notes when we're doing these, um, and I should because I'm getting old. But he mentioned the West Coast offense, and I thought it was interesting to see, you know, they still lined up in the eye. They still had Chris Watson, Clayton, shout out. Yeah. Uh, playing fullback, <laughs> and they had uh, Mo McGregor, who's gigantic backup for Leon Johnson. But <laughs> they were still able to play um, straight up three cloud, three yards in a cloud of the dust. But um, Greg Davis, Matt Brown brought in Greg Davis, and they had the, the West Coast offense, and they were able to do that. And I thought that season, um, and, you know, my memory's fuzzy a little bit on seasons prior to that, but I felt like that season – Carolina really got into um, the modern era on offense, and it's amazing how it's changed over the years. But I thought the uh, you know dink and dunk type offense that we see a lot of these days, Carolina was able to do that, and Keldorf brought that um, from California when he came, and it, it was fascinating for me to watch that evolution of Mac Brown still blending eye power football, but still um, able to. You know, go with the the new wave, so to speak, of uh, Bill Walsh, West Coast, and it really stressed defenses and allowed Carolina's talent a- across the board. Really, I mean, the ninety six, ninety seven teams were were vastly underrated as far as the amount of talent that were on those teams. People have forgotten a lot, but it, that was pretty cool to see looking back. Yeah, you know, and and. I think your your word use of evolution is kind of where I fall because this showed that Mac was willing to kind of make some changes on the fly to adapt to what the program deficiencies were. You know, they they knew that things were different. They were dealing with an injury with with Oscar Davenport. He goes to Palomar Junior College and finds Chris Keldorf. So, I mean, they're not only bringing a West Coast offense, they're bringing a West Coast guy, you know, 3,000 miles to come run that offense. Uh, and it showed that I think Mac understood where his deficiencies were as a program and where he was going to have to adapt and move forward to take the program to the next level and make it a perennial top 10 team. So to put a bow on this one uh, ends up being a Carolina, again, as we've said, workmanlike, very efficient, well done, nice you know, bow on it, not a lot of wasted energy, 27 to 10 win over a Syracuse team that would finish nine and three. Uh, would finish ranked in the top 25. Uh, Carolina finished the season ranked number 10 after dropping the game that shall not be mentioned and the aforementioned uh, 13-0 mud fest that, that uh, Tommy was watching Gene Simmons at. Um, <laughs> guys, I, I appreciate y'all taking the time to, to go back in time with me here and really enjoy some, some old school giant, giant shoulder pads football. I hope we get to do it again. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys for being a part of it. And want to say thanks again to our listeners. Stick around with us on the other side of this break. We will have the aforementioned Palomar Junior College slash Manhattan Beach, California's Chris Keldorf. We'll have a little one-on-one talk with Chris about this game and, and what his mindset was going into it and what he can remember about this tilt at the Carrier Dome with the Syracuse Orange. But Chris, Tommy, thank you guys for being here. Uh, Listeners, stick around. We'll be back on the other side.
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, gang. Thanks for sticking around. We appreciate you joining us here on The Throwback. This is episode five. We're talking about the 1996 Carolina game at Syracuse in the Carrier Dome. And you heard me say a few moments ago that my player of the game was the signal caller, Chris Keldorf. Well, we're lucky enough to have the man himself on the other end of the line, Chris Koldorf. Chris, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Well, I appreciate you joining in with us. And as we've been talking about this game, you know, this was your first road game in the ACC coming in from Palomar. And you're, uh, you know, you'd played Clemson, but this, this is on the road and you're going up against the top 10 opponent. What sorts of things were going through your mind leading up to the game? You know, <clears throat> I was still a little bit, ignorant as to the depth and breadth of of ACC football and Big East football because being out west you know all back back then all I followed was Pac-10 football and didn't really spend much time watching uh, ACC or Big East games it was either UCLA or USC or Cal or you know whatever it may be so understanding you know our opponents and who they are the, the magnitude of these games it was I was still learning that I was still if I'm completely honest I I was still just learning the importance and who we're playing and the history of, of some of our matches. And so going up to Syracuse, I, I was just thinking, okay, it's, it's another game. I, I didn't know much about Syracuse, what we're getting into, or the Carrier Dome. Didn't know the history of Carolina uh, and, and Syracuse. So I was still kind of very innocent, kind of ignorant to it all. Um, and <laughs> I was just like, okay, that's yeah, just another game. Let's, let's, go, let's go play the best we can. I love that kind of using your own innocence and what you don't know and kind of letting yeah. that kind of guide you. That's pretty awesome. So you guys were lucky enough. Well, I don't want to say lucky, but <laughs> Clemson, I guess, was unlucky. So making making you guys lucky by default. But you had that Clemson game on your belt where you essentially just smacked them around 45 to nothing at Keenan. How did having that Clemson game under your belt help you prep for, you know, for your first game? against like a again, on the road, top 10 opponent. How did that Clemson right. game help you? Um, just understanding, you know, you, you, I had a chance to go through spring ball in the summer with the team and, and obviously two days in August, um, a lot of practice time with their own teammates. Um, I thought, wow, the defense is really good. Uh, we got some really talented players like Leon Johnson and Freddie Jones and Jeff Saturday at center and, um, getting through that Clemson game. I was like, wow, we are, we are pretty good. We <laughs> got the number one defense in the country, uh, which certainly helps any, any, any offense on any team. Um, but I was like, wow, okay. Uh, first time I've ever played in front of 70,000 people uh, against Clemson. And I've heard of Clemson and, and the history between Carolina and, and Clemson and beating them 45 nothing. I was like, okay, 
let's shake off the cobwebs here. Let's, <laughs> let's get rid of these nerves and, and let's go play some ball. Um, Cause it's really the first time I've seen any of my teammates in a, in a game situation. It was all just practice. Yeah. Right. So we're talented, but how do we manage games and the tempo and, and, and mood and attitude and, and things of that you know, nature and all those, all those variables that go into a game. Um, I was like, Holy smokes. We, I think we can be pretty good here. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. You guys ended up having a phenomenal season and uh, we'll touch on a little bit, but this was this game against Syracuse would be uh, kind of a springboard for the Mac Brown era. Uh, you guys specifically about this game, you guys seem really methodical on the first half, kind of as a collective offense and defense. What was the offensive mindset or the play calling philosophy for that day? Do you remember? Yeah. So, you know, Coach Dave, Greg Davis is offensive coordinator, and that, that was the offense, just methodical, two-man game, um, one, two, three, throw it away. One, two, three. It was very rhythmic, very methodical. Um, if not there, throw it away, disciplined football. Don't do anything crazy, Chris. Just stay in that pocket. You know, do what you're told, um, and, it'll, and it'll be there. Just take what the you know, defense gives you. And that was, that was just the, the philosophical approach is we're talented running back, we're talented receiver talented you know up front stay stay disciplined stay focused um chris stay in the pocket it'll be there based on our film review um but but that was the that was the tempo throughout the whole season um just methodical disciplined don't do anything crazy stay stay within the framework and, and we're gonna be okay yeah patience was key so when i'm rewatching yeah. that i'd forgotten that you had a little bit of a kind of sidearm flick that you went to a few times uh, and you did it in this game. And it was, uh, it's kind of neat. It's kind of, I guess, near to what we see Aaron Rodgers do sometimes when he's moving the pocket. Was that something you had always done from back when you were younger or is it something you just kind of developed as you started playing with, with a game that was faster? Um, you know, something where you just, you, you pick that, that you got to be careful because it's, you know, the guy who's masters, Patrick Mahomes, watched him play today and, He's throwing from every angle, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's something you pick up when you got to understand throwing through passing lanes. And sometimes you, you just can't come over the top. You, you got to come around guys, yeah. find little windows. Um, you know, your receiver running backs open, uh, but there's a lot of chaos in front of you. I still got to get it to you. So how, how can I do it? And so if you can have, you know, different trajectories in your throwing motion and you can come from low up high or in the middle um, with some accuracy, I think you're going to have a, a lot of success, but um, I was surprised a little bit. I remember a couple of the, the throws there in that game. I think it was just more just being instinctive. And there's, uh, I think there was one to Leon on the sideline, if memory serves, and it was a little slick and sidearm. And it was just backyard ball at that time. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you start developing those those habits in, in high school, just, just trying to get the ball out of your hand and try to find the open guy. Harrison Parquet down at the bottom of your screen. That's McGregor in motion to that side of the field. Keldorf sidearms it incomplete, and there's going to be a flag. I think Donovan Darius might have been draped over his shoulder. No doubt. I mean, it looks for sure that Donovan Darius arrived a little bit early. And Paul Pascaloni knows it. There are times when you break it down and it's just Sandlot ball. It's actually really fun to watch. Um, right. You had a lot Try of make something happen. You, yeah. Well, you know, it's that's the name of the game. You had yeah. You had quite a bit of success that day against a defensive backfield that had guys like Donovan Darius, Keith Bullock, Kevin Abrams, multi-year NFL guys. 
What can you tell us about game prep against, you know, a back a defensive backfield like that? Are there specific tendencies that you're looking for? Were there were there matchups that you felt like you liked going into the game? Yeah, so I, I think um, I think uh, Freddie, our tight end, had a really good game. I think our slot guy Nate Brown had a pretty good game, um, and I think the message there is that Donovan Darius at free safety, obviously, uh, the, the heck of a player, long term NFL uh, yeah. career. Um, Play smart. Play really, really smart. And I think there there was one or two plays I got lucky where I think they just actually dropped one of my passes, <laughs> you know, I think right into his arms. I got lucky. It's okay. I'll take a little luck sometimes. But um, they were really, really good. And, and this is a scenario where if you can stay disciplined, just take – I know this sounds cliche, but take what the defense gives you. Don't You don't have to be crazy. You don't have to make, make unbelievable plays. The plays will be there. And I think we kept it somewhat between the hashes. Uh, I don't think we, we threw a ball maybe over 20 yards. I'd have to take a look at the film again, maybe a few times. But uh, but everything was, was kind of in that 10 to 12-yard mark with Nate Brown and Freddie Jones. I know Freddie had two or three uh, pretty cool catches in that game. But I think it was, you know, short to medium range. Don't let the corners of the safety kind of dictate, um, um, you know, kind of our approach to it. But I think I think that was the message going in, just be very disciplined, don't do anything crazy. We got Freddie and they had a couple other guys, you know, small to mid-range throws. Stay there, stay, stay disciplined, and I think we'll be okay. Yeah, that's a great point. If you if you don't give those guys a chance to make plays, you've essentially taken them out of the game. That's that, that makes a lot right. of sense. And, and you're right, Freddie did have one kind of elephant walking a high wire <laughs> touchdown down the sidelines right. that kind of broke Syracuse's right. back. Right. Okay, so this was this was obviously the one of the first, if not the first, marquee win for Coach Brown. Knowing what we know about kind of the success he would have over his career, how does it feel to have been a part of such a springboard game or such a springboard two seasons, really? Yeah, no, it was – looking back on it now, you, you try to appreciate as much as you can when you're in the moment. Looking back on it now, it, it was, you know, extraordinary. And then you look at Coach Brown's success at Carolina, Texas, and now – success back at Carolina and his recruiting recruiting class now and where he's ranked and all the wonderful things he's doing. And it's pretty special when you, when you look back and all the guys you play with, I, mean, I think I played with over a dozen guys that had a five, close to 10 year NFL career. Um, I mean, Dre Bly and Bonnie Holiday, Kate Mays and Leon Johnson and Freddie Jones, Jeff Saturday. I mean, the, you know, the list is long and looking back on it, you're like, wow, you know, you had an opportunity to have success, but also play with those guys at that level. It's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking of coach Brown, there was a quote that he had uh, in a New York times article after that game where he said, we can play a lot better, but not any harder was trying to get you guys to play hard. Was that the magic in, in coach Brown? It's effort. It, it, his thing was all effort and the rest will take care of itself. Um, just give me the effort. And we're going to coach you up. We're going to watch the film. Um, we're going to keep you con- uh, conditioned. Um, stay disciplined. But his message is effort, effort, effort. You guys have the talent. Um, and we certainly did. But uh, if you give – everyone gave 100%, you're going to have success. And that's his message. That's outstanding. Well, Chris, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, so great to hear your voice. Hope that when we get back to having football that you'll be back in Chapel Hill some. I know it's a long trip, but we'd we'd love to see you again. Really appreciate you taking some time to to join us and talk back about this game. Uh, I want to say thanks again to Chris Keldorf. Thanks to all you guys for listening. 
Uh, special shout out to Johnny T-shirt. Please visit them, sponsoring the show, uh, johnnytshirt.com. Get any Carolina gear that you need. Uh, and we will catch you guys in the next episode of The Throwback. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by johnnytshirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner I. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Four, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.